It is a joy to be here this morning opening God's word with you. Go ahead, you can clap. Such an encouraging church make it easier for a brother to preach. It is a joy to be here this morning opening God's word with you. And if you have your Bibles, you want to open up to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be preaching out of verses 8 through 10. My hope is we might drink deeply from the fountain of profound grace. Bethel Gary, you want to see your hearts drowning in the sea of grace and your minds filled with the knowledge of God's grace and your lives displaying the power of his grace. If we are going to see this kind of grace flowing through our lives, it is very critical that we understand God's love towards us rightly. We often find ourselves viewing the love of God through our self-crafted lens. Our understanding of God's love is often, often informed by our world and culture. Here are some various expressions of love in our day and age. Oh, what love got to do, got to do with it. What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Who needs a heart when the heart can be broken? Now, I know that song got some of you guys through some tough times in your life. Don't act like you don't know that song. I threw some in for my young people. Listen to the famous rapper Lil Wayne. He says, see, you had a lot of crooks try to steal your heart. Never really had luck. Couldn't ever figure it out. How to love, how to love, how to love. And listen to the famous country singer Willie Nelson. Love is like a dying ember, and only memories remain. And through the ages, I'll remember blue eyes crying in the rain. I thought that was kind of slick there. Blue eyes crying in the rain. In our culture, love is often seen as a tit for tat. If you do this, I'll do that. Scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And give a little, get a little. Our culture informs us that love is a two-way street. And we often find ourselves exhausted chasing love, earning love, and just simply wanting to belong. This often comes out in sinful ways. We give our bodies in ungodly ways for love. We manipulate for love. We cheat for love. We lie for love. We steal for love. Arrogant ambition to the top for love. And we collect material possessions for love while screaming on the inside, does anyone notice me? We are often left feeling like a hamster on the wheel, always running but never getting anywhere. Reality is we are simply tired and dried up, and we need a place to rest ourselves, friends. It is there. Is there anywhere in the universe where I can be loved in spite of me? I'm tired of fighting and white-knuckling it out through life. 
my brothers and my sisters, if that is you, you came to the right place today. And there is a love that stretches beyond human comprehension. There is a love that covers a multitude of sins. And there is a love that says it is finished. And this love is unconditional. You cannot earn it. You cannot become good enough for it. This, friends, is the love of God. The love of God embraces the most vile sinner and changes him. And here is my aim this morning. To help you understand the power of grace and salvation. And how that grace results in good works. I'm going to say that again to make sure that we're all on the same journey this morning. Here is my aim. My aim is to help you understand the power of grace in salvation. And how that grace results results into good works. So our text reads, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It would be good for us to have a recapitulation of last week's sermon as these next few verses follows last week's sermon. Paul has for the past seven verses crafted a picture with Holy Spirit inspired words for his viewers to see the love of God through salvation, rebirth, or spiritual resurrection, if you will. Paul has used the first three verses as a backdrop to display and reveal the grace of God. In these three verses, Paul uncovers for us the condition of every human. Pastor Ray explained last week how we are born into spiritual death, inherited from our father, Adam. As this nature has blossomed in many ways, rebellion towards God and evil towards others, we all feel the result of our sin. We all feel the result of our sin and our condition left us in a horrific situation where God's wrath was burning hot against us. We see this in Colossians. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And we rightly are deserving this eternal punishment. In the next four verses, Paul dropped a gospel bomb on us, if you will, starting with the phrase, but God. In old Bethel, Gary, how we love the phrase, but God. How God has delivered so many of us. One day I'm just going to preach a sermon titled, but God. I'm going to get up and say, but God, and sit down. Because but God is something that we all can resonate with. And oh, how we rejoiced last week over that small phrase, but God. And it is very clear from last week's sermon that God has showered us with grace, amazing grace, as we sung so beautifully a second ago. And oh, how we ought to shout 
for joy in this place. That the God of the universe, eternal, all-wise, unchangeable, self-sufficient God will see fit to move in great love to raise up a bunch of jacked up, messed up people who prior to salvation thought less of him than the carpet in their houses. Do you feel the weight of this church? This is great love we are dealing with this morning. And now we come to our text this morning. You would think after seven verses, Paul has clearly articulated his point that we are hopeless and God had freely, without any side influence, save those who are in Christ. It's kind of like the fourth quarter. It is crystal clear who has won the game. The losing team is clear on who has won the game. The crowd is clear on who has won the game. But the winning team, just to make a point, to clear the minds of those who might still think that they won by luck, continues to show out. They are doing dumps, putting things on Facebook and Instagram, just to make a point to the world that the game is over. And although Paul has made it clear that God has saved us and not ourselves, he continues to push the reality that salvation is a work of God. Paul now will explain to us how God will put on display his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. Drop your eyes down to verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. My first point here is that God uses words to help us understand his love. Allow me to do a little foundation work here with our text. In the first part of the text, we see three foundational words for Christianity. Salvation, grace, and faith. John Stott described these words so well. Number one. Grace is God's free and undeserved mercy towards us. And number two, salvation is more than forgiveness. It is deliverance from death, slavery, and wrath. And number three, faith is the humble trust with which we receive it for ourselves. All of these words are here to guide our minds in understanding God's grace towards us and salvation. First, we understand that by the word grace, that God has acted freely. Grace must be on the basis of unconditional love. Friends, you cannot earn grace. You cannot strive for grace. You cannot work for grace. Quit trying to understand why God loves you by examining yourselves and look at the character of God. And that will explain to you why God is so gracious. And aren't you glad that great, that salvation is by grace alone? Because I'm going to keep it real in here. If salvation is not by grace, I'm not getting into heaven. I'm never good enough. We'll never be good enough. And so God has moved freely in grace. And grace is nullified the moment it is earned. It is no longer grace. The very meaning of the word is undeserved, unearned mercy. God had undeserved mercy towards those who were slaves in bondage to death in condemned. We see this in Romans, but thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient 
from the heart. So how did this grace act out? We understand that grace is free. We understand that grace is an act of God. But how did this grace act out in our lives? It acted out in salvation. The second word. Although God should have left you in a state of slavery, sin, and death, he delivered you. How many times has God delivered us? We should have shipwrecked of our lives, but God delivered you. You knew you wouldn't be in church today, but God delivered you. You were doing your own thing, and God delivered you. You are enjoying darkness, and God delivered you. God is a God who delivers us. God delivered you. This is salvation. God moved in power to save you from your condition and situation. Colossians puts it this way. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God had transferred you out of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light with his with his beloved son. And you ought to give God praise that he did not leave you in your darkness, but instead he transferred you out of darkness and brought you into light. You knew you would not have came to God on your own. You were enjoying sin just fine. And don't sit and act like you didn't enjoy sin because the only reason why we sin is because it feels good. No one sins because it doesn't feel good. We, we sin because it does feel good. And God had pity on us and took us out of our darkness and transferred us into his kingdom of marvelous light. And so we understand that grace is God acting freely. Salvation is how God has acted freely. But how did we receive such great salvation? We received it through faith. We had embraced Christ through faith. It is vital that we understand that this faith is in work that we add to the equation. It is that our faith that moved God to save us. We were dead and God had to make us alive before we could ever trust in him. And John Piper describes it this way. The doctor knows a child is alive when it first cries. Faith is the first cry of the believer. When he is born again, made alive in faith, we finally see him as beautiful, wonderful, delightful in our hearts. Cry out to him. Do you remember when you first believed in Christ, the beauty and the majesty of who he was, how you were drawn to him, believer, how you for the first time in your life found Christ as attractive. Do you remember that moment? And oh, what a glorious moment it was when we first seen Christ as treasure and better than the world. That is faith, my friends. And that is the salvation of God at work in your life. So what can we deduce from these three words? God moved in undeserved mercy towards us who were slaves in bondage to death and deserving eternal wrath. This grace has been unfolded in salvation where we are saved from slavery, set free, saved from death, given eternal life and saved from wrath, forgiving of every sin imaginable. This, friends, is what God has done for you. And so let us pause here. Who would ever think that such a love was possible? 
Is there any other faith out there that says God died for you and took your shame and doesn't require a thing from you? No, my friends, let us marvel at such grace that God has bestowed on his church. This kind of grace doesn't exist. This kind of grace is unheard of. That the God of the universe would be a substitute for us and take our place. And while he takes the beating and we go free, this is amazing grace, church. And if you drink of this grace, oh, how your life will change if you understand the grace of God. And so a second point is salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Bethel Gary, at this point, we understand that we were slaves, that we were condemned under the wrath of God and inevitably headed to death. Nevertheless, God had rescued us from our state. God is the superhero in the story. God kills the dragon and gets the girl, as one writer has put it. God had, it's okay to give God a hand clap of praise for killing the dragon and setting you free and saving his bride. It's all right. We celebrate it when it's in the movies, but they just took it from the Bible. That's all that is. God has acted in Christ to redeem all those under the curse of the law. Romans 5 says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God has counseled your sin debt forever. Church, you were slaves, but whom the son set free is free indeed. Once Christ has set a man free, he can no longer go back to slavery. For whom the son set free is free, is, is free indeed. Well, you say, I feel like I am condemned in a slave. Why? Although I have accepted Christ, I still feel like I am in bondage. Why? Here's an analogy I think will help us in this. In 1865, slavery was abolished. The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution abolished slavery in involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. It was passed by the Senate on April 8, 1864, by the House on January 31, 1865, and adopted on December 6, 1865. And on December 18, 1865, the Secretary of State, William H. Award, proclaimed its adoption. It was the first of the three Reconstruction Amendments adopted following the American Civil War. So see, friends, it was declared at that point that the slaves were free. The war had been fought. The good news had spread. The slaves did not have to fight to get free, but now fight to believe they were free. Sisters and brothers, we are not fighting to get freedom. The gospel declares we are free. Jesus has already won the war, and we're just, we just need to come to grips with the fact that we are free. So the fight is not to get free. The fight is to come to grips with the reality that you are free through the gospel. It is proclaimed. It is finished. It is done. You are free. 
Paul knows the human heart all too well. He knows we will struggle to believe God when he said it is finished. The inclination of the human heart is to work or achieve his or her salvation. Paul tries to demolish this kind of reasoning. In verses 8 and 9, we see two negatives. First, this is not your own doing. And second, not a result of works. Brothers and sisters, the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ proclaims here that God didn't save you because of anything in you. You would think we would go somewhere and sit down. But no, we want to work. We say things like, I just, I, I mean, I just can't see how that's true. I mean, I mean, bro, dog, if you've seen what I did last night, there is no way God can accept me. Or, or we say things like, I can't go to church because the roof will burn down. We, we begin to say foolish things. I got to get rebaptized in order for God to accept me. But Jesus said, it is not the healthy that needs a doctor. It is a sick that needs the doctor. You do not get healthy before you come to God. You do not get right before you come to God. You go to God so you can get right. And so this is not your own doing, and it is not a result of works. We say, I just can't accept that. I feel like I'm getting away with something. Surely there is something I have to do. You don't understand, dog, if you knew what I did last night. But, but, but bro, I'm falling, man, and, and I keep slipping. I don't see how God will take such a sinner back. And you know every time you try to clean your mess up, you mess up. Every time you try to fix your life, it gets worse. For some reason, we think we can do a better job than what God has already done through Christ. We think that we can improve on the cross, but it is foolishness. What God has done through Christ is sufficient for you. And so we family in this place this morning, right? So I just want to keep it real and. I have a little confession up here about something that happened in my own life. If you know Theresa, our children's director, uh, she has an office, and, and it's pretty nice. It's, it's nice and pretty. She's fancy, if you want to put it like that. <laughs> and so she sends a group text to the staff at the church, and she says, can someone go into my room and uh, see what kind of ink my printer takes? So me being the godly man that I am, the servant that I am, I take it upon thyself. You see, we church folks, whenever we get ready to do something good, we start talking in King James English. So, so, so I, I'm, I'm going to go and take it upon thyself to go see what kind of ink cartridge my sister needs. So I go into her room. I open up the door. I, 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 I remove the cover where the ink is. I pull the ink cartridge out. I begin to examine the ink cartridge looking for a number. I'm not tech savvy. And so I turn it upside down and ink begins to drop. Ink begins to drop out of the cartridge. Ink is now running down my arm. There is about, now, now, now listen, it, there, there was only seven drops on the carpet. I said, well, I have to fix this because if she finds out that I've done this, she's going to be angry and we're going to have a church split and we can't have that. So I have to fix it. So I took it upon myself. I said, ha ha, I know what I will do. I will run to the janitor's closet. I will grab a rag and I will scrub the ink out of the carpet. I was in panic mode. Come on now, give me some grace. And so I ran to the carpet and I began to scrub the carpet. And the more I scrubbed the carpet, the worse the ink stain became. And see, I think we have a picture of it. I think I took a picture of it, dude. 
it, it was seven dots, but the more I worked at it, the worse it got. So I sat there for about five minutes trying to figure out how can I get this ink out of her carpet. Maybe I can run it to the laundromat and wash it and throw some gain in there and it'll take it out and I'll be okay. But no, after five minutes, I said, I just have to man up and I have to call her. After all, I am a man. I must call her. And so I called her on the phone and she picks up the phone and she says, hello. And I said, hey, Theresa, you know that printer in your office and that carpet on the floor. Uh, I have I have utterly ruined it. And she said, oh, dude, don't worry about it. It's just material stuff. I said, this woman is saved. Anybody else would have just went off on me. But I said, this woman has got to be saved. The rest is a little crazy if y'all don't know, but she was gracious. I'm like, man, this woman is saved for real. You see, friends, we need to stop trying to be Mr. and Mrs. Fix-It in our lives and confess we are a mess. Every time we try to fix it, we mess it up all the more. Only God can fix those who trust in Christ. It is not your works that gets you together. It is the grace of God. And so let us pause here. I know this is a struggle for many of us in the room. And I want to echo the words of Martin Luther to you. So when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death in hell, you tell him this. I admit that I deserve death in hell. And what of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. You ought to give God a hand cap of praise that one has made satisfaction for your sins, friends. So hear me on this, church. God is not your employer. And you are not his employee. We are not clocking in and out. We are not putting hours in, hoping to have done more good things with our time so that God can accept us into his presence. As John Piper says, God is not an employer looking for employees. He is an eagle looking for people who will take refuge under his wing. And oh, if you would rest in this great God, If you would stop your toiling and fighting and rest in him, God is not your employer. He is not needy of you. He is self-sufficient with you or without you. He is the absolute reality which we all must reckon with. The reality that was here before any other reality. And if there is going to be another reality, it only exists because he determines that it should exist. He is God. Therefore, let us not trust our souls with how many times we went to Bible study, how many times we went to Sunday school, uh, how many times we came to the altar, how many times we came to church, how many times we paid our tithes, didn't watch porn, love our wives, cut off bad music and movies. Instead, let us echo the words of the old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. This is not your own doing, and second, not a result of works. I like when y'all clap that allows me to get a drink of water. <laughs> Salvation is a gift. Salvation is God's gift. It's my next point. If we look closely at verse 8, 
we will understand why it is impossible for us to work for salvation. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You see, friends, it is a gift from God to you. You remember on Christmas as a child under the tree, there was a gift with your name on it. It read blank from mom and dad. Do you remember ever paying for your gift? No, of course not. If you had paid for it, it would not have been a gift, but a purchase. The very meaning of gift is something bestowed and acquired without any particular effort by the recipient or without it being earned. God gifted you with salvation. When I give, when I give my children a gift, it brings about a sort of delight for me. I give to my children because it brings daddy great joy to see them happy. Friends, we are the recipients of this great salvation, and God is the giver. You are the needy one, not God. In Acts 17, we see this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is self-sufficient. He is not a needy God, undeveloped God, or crippled God. His character alone is the very reason salvation must be a gift. What will you offer God? What do you have that does not belong to him? How do you give to a God who raw material is nothingness? He spoke the world into being out of nothing. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Yes, Bethel Gary. God is always the giver in the relationship. God delights in setting sinners free. As Spurgeon says, to blot out 10,000 sins is with him no effort of grace, for he is plenteous in mercy. He has been forgiving the Son of Man ever since the first sinner crossed the threshold of paradise, and he delights to do it. Therefore, friends, let us boast in Christ alone. Why does God delight in saving sinners? Why is salvation a gift? Paul answers the question in verse 9. So that no one may boast. Here is the divine purpose of why salvation is designed the way that it is. It is designed this way so that God alone gets all the glory. If we did not work for it, how can we boast in ourselves? If we did not achieve it, how can we boast in our achievements? No one would say on the great day, I was a slave to sin, but I set myself free. I was guilty before God, but I paid my debt in full. There will be no strutting around in heaven. There will be no hall of fame for us sinners. There will only be the boasting of blood-washed sinners singing the praises of their gracious God. As John Stott said, heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and praises of God. There will indeed be displays in heaven, not self-displays, however, but rather a display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace and mercy and kindness through Jesus Christ. Therefore, friends, 
Let us boast now in the promises of God. Let us boast in his victory. 2 Corinthians 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always lead us in triumphal procession through us spreading the fragrance and the knowledge of him everywhere. Let us boast in his blood. Romans 5. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. Let us boast in the power at work in us. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And let us boast in his love, friends. But God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us boast in God, friends. He is the one deserving all of the praise and all of the glory forever and ever. He is the one we ought to love and adore. May our hearts overflow with the praises of spiritual hymns unto our God and King. Now drop your eyes down to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember in the first three verses that Pastor Ray preached on last week, we walk in transgressions and sin prior to salvation, old nature. God has now gave you a new nature so that you can walk in good works. See, family, it is when God changes us that we can do good things. But before, it is impossible. It is critical we understand the language Paul is using here. The the Greek word is poema, workmanship, meaning his work of art, his masterpiece. This other word, I really can't pronounce it, but I wrote it. Uh, I want to say ketness because that's what it sounds like from Hunger Games. Uh, But anyways, ketness meaning created. Both of these words are creation words. John Stott says, Paul has described so far salvation as resurrection from the dead, liberation from slavery, and rescue from condemnation. Moreover, each declares it is a work from God. Dead people cannot bring themselves to life again nor can captive and condemned people free themselves. Paul goes over and beyond to eliminate any human boasting and simply says, God recreated you, homie. Bottom line. And here's the question, family. Being that salvation is of no cost to you, being that it is a gift of God, being that you cannot work for it, should we now live how we want? Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? It is true that God has saved us apart from our works, as I have been saying. Good works can never result into salvation, but salvation ought to result into good works. Let me say that again. It is very critical that you do not turn this around. The moment you turn it around, you no longer have Christianity. You have a work-based religion. God works I mean, good works can never result into salvation, but salvation ought to result into good works. Here's an analogy to help you. Does an apple tree produce apples because it is an apple? By no means. It produces apples because its very nature causes it to produce. My friends, if you have been made alive, born again, recreated, you will produce good works. Every good work you do is a direct result of being united to Christ. 
Believers are eager to serve, not to be made right with God, but because they are right with God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to walk in a matter worthy of your calling. Bethel Gary, let us give ourselves to the needs in our church and our community. Let us be a church that Christ has called us to be. Can you imagine what our church, community, schools, and jobs would look like if we were to rise up to the glory of God? Can you imagine what homes would look like if you fathers would rise up and lead? Can you imagine what marriages would look like if men would start loving their wives as Christ loved the church? Can you imagine what could happen if older women taught younger women how to love their husbands? Can you imagine with me for a moment what would happen if the next thug that walks through this door felt like he belonged to a family? Can you imagine what could happen if we thought of others more than ourselves? Can you imagine... What can happen if each person served in some capacity in the church? Can you imagine what the church might be if over the years we remain faithful to this holy book? Can you imagine how abortion numbers would drop if we began to serve young women in our community? Can you imagine what would happen if we love this city with the love of Christ? Can you imagine what could happen if we... If we believe that the gospel was the most important thing in the universe, can you imagine Bethel Gary, what God might do in this place? If we were to exalt him above everything else, if we were to exalt his name, if we were to praise his glory, if we were to give him his due glory, what God would do in this place. Can you imagine? Bethel Gary, God is doing some great and wonderful things in this church. God is doing some tremendous things. And I want to encourage each and every last individual in this room to get involved. It is such a blessing when you get involved in church. It is a blessing when you begin to serve. But let us not serve the church because we think that God will love us all the more. Oh, that God would see fit to give us more attention. But let us remember that God loved us before we ever did anything for him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Bethel Gary, God has set you free, restored you, and counseled your sin debt. And all of this accomplished through the death of his son. Christ did not consider equality with God but gave himself up freely for the joy of us all. Now use your freedom to serve God. Walk in what God has declared you to be in Christ and expect changes to happen around here. And I want to talk to those who have yet accepted Christ. I want you to know that there is more room at the cross for you. We would love to join you in rejoicing over God's work in salvation. If you are thinking to yourself, I really don't know Christ. I have not been saved. I plead with you to plead with God to open the eyes of your heart to Christ. We are here as a church to love on you. And second, we are here to embrace you and to help you mature in Christ. And there may be many of us in the room today as our prayer counselors come forward. There may be many of us in the room today that are eager to to get connected, are eager to get involved and just simply just need prayer because our life is a shipwreck. And we want to walk with you through that. We want to walk with you through 
what God is able to do in your life. In a moment here, church, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate the love of God. We're going to celebrate the grace of God. And as we lift our voices to our God and King, I encourage anyone who wants prayer to just begin to make your way forward. So if we will stand, let us begin to worship our God. I'll come back with a closing benediction and we'll be released.